Welcome to Early Learning Journeys. Jeff Johnson here with Tamar Jacobson. How are you doing, Tamar? I'm doing great, Jeff. Such a lovely morning here in Philadelphia. Glad to uh, be with you via Zoom. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And in studio with us, we've got a special guest. Why don't you introduce her and then we'll jump into her journey. Sherry Cleary. She's a, I would like to call her a dear friend, but a colleague too, um, in, in the early learning journey for many, many years. Well, I think you're less many than me, Sherry. (laughs) Um, I met Sherry many years ago when I was um, going to be the co-chair of the um, AEYC of Western New York's fall conference, and she was going to be the other co-chair. So I went to her at Erie Community College, where she was then the director of the child care center there, um, Development Center? I've forgotten the name of it, Sherry. It was a lab school. It was the Child Care Center slash lab school for Erie Community College in the city. Yeah. And so I met her there. And um, I have to say, Jeff, you know this expression. I fell in love with her when I met her. (laughs) And um, we've been colleagues ever since ever since that time. So we're going to find out, I mean, I'm not going to say more about her because I'd like her to say about herself from herself. So Sherry, where, where do you start? What's, what, what's the, what's the beginning of Sherry, uh, uh, your childhood, your youth? Um, well, it's great to be with you both. So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, you know, I think my story is, is relatively classic in that I um, was born to two people who loved me a lot, but they struggled in other ways. And I had a fairly, I think it's fair to say, a very, very challenging early childhood. And that led to a fairly challenging childhood. And it was not lost on me almost from the beginning, that this was not a good idea, that having a rough uh, beginning was not a good way to get started. And it, and it was very, very clear to me early on what, what were the issues, what were the challenges, what was it like to be afraid when you were very, very small a lot to be afraid a lot, to be lonely often, to miss the people that you loved the most in very significant ways. And I think when I I do look back, I think that is how I came to early childhood. Past that, it was clear to me having um, siblings much younger than myself, how important early experiences were for them. And, um, and I knew that I wanted to be a teacher from the very beginning. But I also will say this, because I think it's so important to be honest. Um, and I've said this to a few people, few groups in the past, it was never my intent to have a career. Um, my my deepest desire was to grow up, meet a partner, a man, 
and to have somewhere between five and nine children. <laughs> that was my goal. And Wonderful. I'm way, way too old to have that goal anymore. Um, but in my life, there have been many, many children who I, who I would call my own. Um, and then I had one extraordinary and have one extraordinary biological child. And so while I only had one when I was thinking I would have five or, or more, um, he has really been the complete and total light of my life. And that's a lot of pressure to put on one human being. So I often feel like I have to apologize to him for all the pressure that puts on him, um, even now as he's an adult. But there have been many other children in my life, in my life that really have um, maybe, maybe made it easier to not have had nine children, right, of my own. Um, but I never, ever thought about a career. And, and, the, and I went into early childhood education because it was what I was interested in. And I thought, and it's where my passion was, and I thought it would make me a better parent. Um, that remains to be seen. The only person that can really speak to that is my son, <laughs> whether it made me a, a decent parent or not. But, um, but being in early childhood certainly made me um, a wonderful, extraordinary career and made me an effective person for young children. And, um, you know, every day, and I think it's safe to say I'm in my 45th or 46th year of work, every day I think I can do just a little better or a lot better, right? And I'm not finished the, you know, growing and developing, but I feel great about the privilege that I've had in this career. So Sherry, before we sort of unpack this uh, early childhood of yours, if as much as you are prepared to share, um, I forgot to say what you're doing right now. Can you, can you just mention that and then we'll go back to the, the beginning? Sure. sure. So after uh, many years of being in early childhood education at the, at the, in the program, area. So for many, many years, I, I taught, well, I taught for about two or three years, then I became a director of an early childhood program. And then I ran two uh, lab schools, one at a community college, as we spoke about when I met Tamar, and the other at the University of Pittsburgh. And then uh, for the last 15 years, I've been at the City University of New York. Um, I will say that that the beauty of working at those two U colleges, the, the community college and the university, was that I not only ran the lab schools, but that I taught in the schools of education um, in both places and really um, had this incredible privilege of being around children all day and then being with college students who wanted to be principals, directors, and teachers uh, also during the day and in the evenings. And it was just an extraordinary preparation for what I do now, which is that I run the New York Early Childhood Professional Development Institute. 
and I am the University Dean of Early Childhood Initiatives at the City University of New York. And those are two full-time jobs. And then on the side, I co-chair the Governor's Early Childhood Advisory Council with my wonderful partner, Patty Purcell. And so, um, so I, I feel very often that I have at least three jobs and, um, and I love them equally. And, um, and I'm humbled by each of them every day. Well, I'm, I'm glad you got something to fill up your time between those two full-time jobs. So it's, it's a good thing you got the third thing going on. That's, that's, that's Keeps important. Keeps me out of trouble, Jeff. A little. <laughs> I'm sure you have time for a bit of trouble. It would be healthier if I could find some more trouble, actually. <laughs> well, we'll have to work on that later. I'll yeah. talk to you about that later. It <laughs> could be a side thing. Mars always got ideas for getting people in trouble. Um, so, so Sherry, let's if if you're willing, I'd like to hear more about about your your early years. You you kind of you kind of gave us an overview, and and I don't want to I don't want to dig into anything you don't want to dig into. But um, what was what day in the life? Oh, I disagree, Jeff. Oh, okay, I want what? to dig into everything she does want to dig into because it's going to be fascinating, and it, I'm sure there's a lot of people who've had a lot of experiences. Similar to to Sherry and me, for that matter, because we have when she was talking, I was feeling like, oh, is she talking about my life here? Oh, the loneliness and the what you were saying about being lonely and afraid. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. I'll start out by saying what I started out by saying, which is I was born to two people who really um, were both very special and both really loved me, but they could not be together and I needed them to be together in the beginning or so I thought. Um, but it was in the, in the splitting that was so very difficult. And um, so, you know, I was a child of the fifties and divorce was very unusual in the fifties. And, um, but it wasn't so much the divorce. It was all the other things around it. And I am not going to go into great detail, um, but suffice to say that my, Uh, mother felt it would be best to take my brother and I as somebody who I adore and who I'm very close to took took us away from our birthplace and um and and of course in that regard took us away from our father and I'm going to talk a minute about my dad because he was an extraordinary human being um difficult intense exacting he was an engineer Um, so things had to be in his work life perfection, but in his love life with my brother and I, he was the most generous human that I think I've ever encountered. And he fought, um, exceedingly hard to be a part of our life. And it, it was almost impossible, uh, certain, certainly by circumstance, but just because it was not done, it was not socially acceptable, for a man to have a, a major role in, in raising um, his children in the 50s. And um, he was insistent and persistent in a way that I think uh, most people didn't understand and other people were stunned by, including uh, taking issues right to the, the state Supreme Court so that he could have um, very generous visitation rights and, um, and a say in our, in our childbirth. And so I, 
say that because what I learned early on is that no matter how dire or horrible somebody's circumstances are, when there's at least one person in your life that you know is insisting on your success, on somebody who is insistent on communicating how loved you are and who fights every step of the way to to be in your camp it builds a certain resilience and i am um, fascinated by resilience and which children have it and which children don't and um and what i've learned is over the years is that that my initial thought is has been affirmed over and over again when you meet somebody who has been through almost insurmountable experiences things that that put some people just in a in a lifelong tailspin when you have a person who and, and we've talked about this in early childhood is unconditionally crazy about you and um, and goes to the ends of the earth to be that person for you, you not only survive, you end up thriving, and you are the you are the benefactor of that intensity. And it and there is no real option to not make it, to not make it through the most painful things. And so um, his strength became my strength. You know, I became this stubborn, strong person because here was this person in my life who just, I don't think there was anything that would keep him from, uh, from being there for my brother and I. And it isn't to say that he was not, you know, he was challenging and intense and, um, and, you know, and there were times in my teenage life that we would come to, um, you know, not blows, but certainly, you know, where we would, you know, have to work things through. But it was, it was, there was never, ever, ever a question of whether he would be my best person. And, and for many years, my only you know, my real anchor. And I'll tell you a, a lovely quick story about when I was in um, a freshman in high school. And uh, so my father did have in- incredible visitation rights. And, and I, he picked up, uh, he drove two and a half hours one way every single Saturday of my life to, to, to see me and to spend the day with me and my brother. And even though we had very um, real social lives, on Saturday, there was never a question. Like, uh, we didn't go with our friends on Saturdays. We were with our dad. And even through high school, until I graduated high school and went to college, every Saturday was given to my father. And he gave it to his Saturday to us. Um, so on one Saturday, uh, we were at lunch and of course, my brother and I would torture him with, the, with, with all the junk that happened through the week. I mean, it had to be the most boring junk ever, right? Like he said this and she did this and then mommy did this and her husband did this. You know, we would just unload on this poor guy. 
But on this particular Saturday, I was a little preoccupied because um, a girl had become pregnant in my high school class and her parents, um, as she began to show, her parents sent her away. And I was so horrified by that. But in addition, at, the, at, at, at lunch with my friends during the week, all of my friends and I were talking about this incessantly. We were, you know, this was teenage pregnancy was not a thing in the 60s. And no, it, apparently it was. Well, <laughs> yes, it was, but not very yeah. often, right? It yeah. was really kind of a stunner. And um, so, yes, you're right, Jeff. It was it was something all over the place. But in in my little town, it was not so common. And uh, but all the girls in my class in, 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 you know, that we would eat lunch with said, well, my parents said that if I ever got pregnant, they would throw me out or they would send me away, too. And they would do this and they would do that. And, I, you know, I'd never thought about this as an option of getting pregnant, but but I was kind of surprised at, at what these girls were being told by their parents. And I shared with my father what was going on, that this you know, lovely young woman, Priscilla, was pregnant and that she got sent away and that we were so taken with all of this and that all the girls that I hang around with, their parents all said that they would be disowned, they would be sent away, et cetera. And my father, in the most quiet and reflective way, said, hmm, I would think that if you were to get into a spot of trouble like that, something serious, that it would be my job to help you and that you would come to me and that we would work it out together. And the last thing that would ever happen is that I would leave you, leave your side through something like that. And that was the safety net that I grew up with. That's that an amazing story. Connection where he, where he, where A, I could tell him something that high school girl stuff, right? And that he would be that reflective and that supportive. And, and I'm sure that there was a moment in his mind that thought, well, now what should I sh say? Because I sure don't want to encourage a, a, a teenage pregnancy in this, in this, little dyad here but what do I say to her to provide the support and to know that whenever anything comes she can come to me and I have always you know I knew that my entire life so that's just an example of where I think um, a very early childhood where people hurt me physically and psychologically where I felt alone and, um, and where I felt that I had to fight hard and sophisticatedly on behalf of my brother and I when we were so tiny, like really fight. Um, you know, the, the, the counterbalance to that was knowing that my dad was always in the background. You know, my mom was trying to manage as best she could, it, which was very, very challenging for her. And, and my dad, um, and, and she couldn't protect us as best as she should have and probably wanted to. And my dad was in the background. And, and all that time, I was thinking, if you can get through this, you can do anything, you know. 
And so that, that made me very tough, I think, and, mm-hmm. and very strong. Um, and, you know, and, I, and sometimes I worry about the, the balance of strength and sensitivity and how important that is and that you don't want to lose that kind of balance of strength and, and um, vulnerability. How old were you when, when the uh, split first happened? I was uh, four. four and, and, and how did your how did your mother respond to the energy your your dad put into fighting for his visitation and efforts to stay in touch with you? It was very, very stressful. It was and, and you know, we always tell parents try not to put your children in the middle and man alive, I felt like my brother and I were right smack in the middle and that I was the oldest may, meant maybe that I was even more aware of, of that. And so they, neither of them handled it um, very well, you know, and yet, you know, in hindsight, I learned a lot and I learned um, how grownups can be. And you know, it's again, I'm, I always talk about um, tensions, you know, when we talk about our work that I'm sure we'll get to, I think about the tension of patience and urgency, right? <laughs> and work we do. But, you know, as a child, I learned about uh, all kinds of other tensions, that somebody could love you and still make mistakes, right? That, um, that, that, that adults are fallible, right? That, you know, I, I fought that for a long time. I didn't want to believe that adults uh, were fallible. And quite honestly, I'm sure I didn't think they had a right to be fallible on behalf of children. And I struggle with that to this day. I don't feel that we can afford to be fallible on behalf of children. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet, you know, we are human and we do the best we can every day, or I'd like to think that we do. So, um, you know, but I was very young and I have very, very vivid memories. Uh, I have probably vivid memories from the time that I was, uh, the first memories I have are one, are probably when I was about two and a half. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, amazing. This, this may be kind of a sidebar, but I, I think with, with your stories about your dad, it, it might be, might be useful to get your thoughts on this. I, I'm wondering about just you professionally, your thoughts on fathers in the lives of young children, because we're living in a world where there are a lot of kids growing up without a father involved on a daily, let alone ever uh, basis in their lives. And I, 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 what do you, what are your thoughts? Do we? Yeah, I think it's a great question, um, Jeff. You know, men, um, men get a bad rap. Um, all men, particularly black men, but all men get a, a bad rap. And, um, and, and I can honestly say that I've grown up loving men and I have loved many men. Um, and, um, but, but men belong deeply and intrinsically in children's lives. And I believe very strongly that men in early childhood is essential, that that makes for a very strong early childhood field when we have men. And, uh, and, you know, right now we probably have about 
four to six percent of men in early childhood. It's very, very challenging to recruit men into the field, but we keep trying and we keep doing it. Um, because one moment, yeah. one moment, Sherry. What was the eyes there, Jeff? Do you think it's less percent? Oh, I, I think that I think that sounds high. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a lot of data, and, <laughs> and we we see that it's about between four and six percent. However, what I will say is that it is more common than not for the male in early childhood to then become the director or to take on a leadership position. And so they move too often out of the classroom too early. And so I should say that I don't think anybody should really uh, stay in the early childhood classroom with children past 10 to 15 years. I think that that is the, the, the time that somebody can be most effective, most productive. And then I think we have to look at our work as a career where you do different things and take on different responsibilities, grow in your teaching. Sure. If you want to stay a teacher, but you have to keep growing in that work and it's perfectly acceptable to move out of teaching into other fields or other parts of the field, writing, research, leading, advocating, doing all the preparing the next uh, generation of the workforce. Um, And I think we have to have a much more robust career ladder and and support people but what I coming back to men I think what happens is men leave the classroom far earlier than women do and they end up becoming uh, they end up taking on leadership roles and so to your question I think that it's exceedingly important for children to have men in the classroom and to have men in in the classroom for both girls and boys for both and, and for children who are not quite sure of, of uh, where they fit, I think that there needs to be um, that children have a right and need to be exposed to men and women and, 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 and be nurtured by both. And I will, um, you know, it's, it's funny how we grow over the years. When I was a sophomore in college, I went to a place that was just extraordinary in their teacher education program for early childhood. And I started um, observing and participating in children's classrooms right in the beginning of my three-year program. And and my first assignment was with a third grade. And and I understood that the cooperating teacher was going to be a man. And I thought, and I brought every stereotype to that to, to the pre before I even met him, you know, he was probably going to be effeminate and, and why was he doing, you know, I just, oh my God, I was so ignorant at that moment in time in my life. And um, so the, so the first, and, and I'm going to give his name because he was so incredible. He, um, so his, and his, his name was Bill Greenleaf. And I thought, oh, what a name, you know, he's, he sounds like Mr. Green Jeans. And, and so I just was like, you know, so, narrow in my uh, and small in my thinking and so I go to the school on the first day and I knock on the door and this and the door opens and and the person standing at the door is the most physically beautiful strong man that I'd seen in a long time and uh, he said (laughs) now I want to get a look at this guy he said you must be Sherry I'm Bill and I thought oh okay maybe this is going to be interesting. 
And the very next thing that happened was a beautiful child named Natalie um, came up to him and put her arms around him. And he put his arm around her. And he said, and this is Natalie. Natalie, this is Sherry. She's going to spend some time in our classroom. And from that moment on, I get chills now. I was, a, I was an authentic member of that classroom. And his teaching was extraordinary, both in the content and in the affect. And I was really the luckiest person ever because from the very beginning, what I saw was a man being an incredibly effective teacher for young children. And so from that moment on, I was a convert, right? I, I, um, there were very few guys in my class, if, I, if, I, if there were any, but if there were ever, you know, we treated them with respect. And, and now, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot to try to recruit men into the field because that makes a difference. I think they have so much to offer. And, you know, on a light note, um, I was once asked to give a talk to the janitors of a school district. And my initial thought was, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like, what am I doing? And then I thought, wait a minute. The janitors for some of these kids are the only men that they get to experience. And if the janitor is cranky and resents children for, you know, tracking in mud every morning from the, from the outdoors, then that's a problem. So I loved that experience that I had with the janitor. And, 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 and took great pleasure in explaining to them how important they were in the lives of the children that they served in their schools. And, and we really, I mean, it was really one of the best pieces of professional development I think I've ever done. <laughs> they were responsive. They were awed. You know, some of them had never thought about it that way. And it was really kind of special. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of men. I think, they, I think, I, you know, and I think as fathers, you know, I've, I've worked very, very hard to make sure that fathers' rights were protected when there were splits in, in the programs that I worked in. Um, you know, when a mother would come to me and say, you know what, we're splitting, I would say, well, good, tomorrow we'll have to have a meeting with your husband and you you know, because this is going to be huge for your children. I get it that this is huge for you, but this is going to be bigger for your children. And we're going to talk about it together. And, you know, I've, I've heard it all, you know, I don't talk to him anymore. Well, you're going to be talking to him tomorrow. <laughs> you're, you will both be in my office tomorrow. We are having a talk. Um, and I, and I think that um, making sure that fathers knew they could visit their children, be a full part of their children's lives, um, irregardless of how the splits happen, um, is important. And of course, uh, it's not uncommon to have parents who are not married struggling to figure this out. And again, it's really important for both women and men um, to understand this. And I, you know, I've had similar dynamics in same-sex uh, relationships. Sure. Where, where there's a split 
and there's this, you know, real animosity and um, it's destructive to the children and, it, and it's not necessary, you know, just because you don't like each other anymore doesn't mean that the children have to pay for that. And so just navigating that stuff has been a privileged part of, of my work in the past. Thank you for sharing all that. Let's get, let's navigate back to you. Um, it's it's the sixties. You're a teenager. Uh, what kind of what kind of teenager were you, Sherry? I was a really really good girl. Um, you know, I um, I look back and think it's almost comical. I was re well. First of all, my mother remarried. Ten uh, when I was ten, she had my. Uh, my first sister and when I was 15 she had my second sister and um, so there was this huge age difference I was um, so tickled so thrilled to have those girls in my life Um, but I was a caretaker in a lot of ways I I was expected um, to take care of the girls and I spent a lot of time with them when, uh, bef- when I was in high school. And, um, and I was just a good girl. I, I didn't, I mean, I certainly smoked a cigarette, but I didn't take it up. Um, I didn't do any significant drinking or any kind of experimenting. I was afraid and I didn't want to disappoint my father. And, you know, my parents, both of them, um, I don't know whether they, well, I think they must have intended to do it. They raised me to be incredibly responsible. Um, I'll give you a, a great story about my mom. The first time that I ever went on a date, like a real date, the guy picked me up. How old were you? I was probably 16. And I can tell you what I wore. It was such a momentous I mean, I had a black and white checked button-down shirt tucked into a really amazing pair of black bell bottoms, which were all the rage um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And, um, And so this was the very late 60s. And he picked me up and he said to my mother, what time does Sherry have to be home? And my mother looked at him and looked at me and then looked back at him and said, Sherry knows. Now I gotta tell you, we had never once had a conversation about a curfew or time to come home. I I almost blurted out, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was so naive and so, you know, young. But there was something in her eyes. I mean, she like looked right into my soul when she said it and I thought, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not gonna speak. And so we left. We had a lovely time. We went to see a movie. Uh, We went for some food afterwards and we actually went with another couple. So it was very safe Um, and, or seemingly, you know, was, I'm sure it could have gone wrong, but it didn't. And then, and then I got home. And when I got home, it was about 11.15, and my mother was, of course, in her bedroom, and I went in just to tell her I'd gotten home okay. And I, I said to her, Mom, what time was I supposed to come home? And she said, well, if you were having a great time, you could have stayed out a little longer. 
But if you were having a terrible time, I wanted you to be able to get home as soon as possible. And I trusted you to figure it out. Well, it was stunning in all of the life lessons that came of that because at that moment, I realized I didn't ever want to lose that privilege of being in charge of my own perfect. And so as a result, I never ever stayed out late. I always came home. I never, you know, I just didn't want to lose that trust. And it was so brilliant on her part to do that. I mean, it was a burden that I, I think I carried until probably the day she died, which is only about six years ago, you know, five or six years ago. I just, you know, it was, it was brilliant. And, and I so, learned so from So were you it. always good? Yeah. Always, yeah. right till now? Um, pretty, pretty much. Um, oh my God, Sherry, I've got to come to I mean, New York look, and take you out. Well, look, you know, as an adult woman, I have certainly, um, you know, experimented a little bit with my own, you know, self. But, but um, yeah, I'm, I, I was a good girl. Well, even when I got to college, I, I was, I'll, I'll tell you, I was the only one that didn't get drunk. Uh, and I rolled other people's joints because I didn't smoke pot. Um, but I, I, but I, you know, because I was the, always the one that was totally lucid, I learned how to do it. And I was, people would say, hey, roll us a couple of joints. And I would be there, you know, rolling people's joints. But I never smoked. I just, I just was good. Sherry, in I think that, in that context, Sherry, right. I think I think you and I are a lot more straight edge than Tamar. Tamar's probably got a got a wild side that we're going to have to dig into on a future episode. So Sorry. you're you're a teenager. You've got these two young siblings. What other experiences were you having uh, with with young children in those days? Were you doing any any weekend babysitting that kind of sure. thing that people tend to do? Sure, I you know I worked in a drugstore and I. Of to, to make money and then I babysat all the time for the girls and and in the neighborhood and and I was always always um you know if we were at a family gathering I would way rather be with the children and and I would have to say most times now that's you know I, I'm much more comfortable with small people um although I love people and have wonderful friends and all that other good stuff I, I would much rather be around children and when I went away to school um there was no doubt in my mind that I would be a teacher um because you had a you know major in something and and I I didn't go to find a husband but I really did go to have this backup plan in case I didn't get a husband which was to be a teacher and um and then just by sheer luck I ended up at a school that not only had a very large teaching program, but they had a specialty in early childhood. And that program was small, very selective, and extraordinary. And it is from that program that, I, that my career emerged. And they are completely responsible for... Um, for if I've done anything good in this in this work, it's because I had the privilege of that program. 
I, I want to hear about that program, but first I want to hear what what does a, a Friday night in the in the sixties with Sherry babysitting? What's the what's the evening look like for for you and the kids? Oh, you know what? I learned early on that. Um, so there are some things that have guided my entire career. One is to honor and and trust children, and I think in this country we don't trust children, but. Um, but I learned early on to trust children. And so, you know, I didn't come with all kinds of ideas and, and plans. It, you know, I was interested in what the agenda of each child was. And also for my sisters, I mean, granted, we would bake or we would do things, but, but really um, something that's always been a hallmark of my work with children is to, um, is to know from the beginning that they have an agenda of their own. And they have interests and they have gifts and strengths. And so, you know, I think my, my, my work was to enjoy them and to, and to give them um, security and safety because I, it's something that I didn't have. And so making sure that every child that I worked with knew they were safe was very important to me and that I would keep them safe, but also really just to enjoy to, to have joy, to, to have fun. Um, so, you know, I can't say anything very prolific about my babysitting well, was that Was that innate or is that something you, you learned someplace else that, that trusting them and that looking for that little bit of joy and the experience? Yeah, you know, I think, I think I had a huge amount of responsibility when I was very young for my brother um, to the point where it was obnoxious for him, I'm sure. But, you know, I had, a, I, I felt really responsible for him. Um, he was very different from me when my brother was young. He was very, very quiet, very introverted. And I worried about him as, as did my parents. But, you know, I, I feel like I cared for him deeply um, in those years. And But I was also, um, you know, I had a lot of responsibility from the time that I was 10. My mother trusted me. I I babysat for my sister overnight when I was probably 11 years old. When you look back now, that's crazy. Yeah. But I didn't think twice about it. And obviously neither did my mother. You know, I I mean, my sister was a baby. And um, so... I, I just had a lot of responsibility as a young person and, um, and, and, you know, and my father trusted us in amazing ways. We spent our, our whole summer with him, six weeks in the summer, in the beginning with him. And much of that time we were, um, we had the best babysitter ever. So that is another impact on my life. Um, you know, my father had to work, so he fought tooth and nail to get custody, but then he got it, but he had to work, and so he found, uh, he had a colleague at um, where he worked um, whose wife was willing to take my brother and I every day, and she had, at the time, two children of her own, then three, um, but she was, um, she was inspirational. In, in that she trusted us and she loved us with such a 
a straight passion, like not gushy and not effusive, but I felt so safe in her home and at a time where I was vulnerable everywhere else. Uh, I felt so safe in her home and she had no agenda. Our summers were free and playful and we cooked and we baked and we played out in the backyard for hours at a time. And it was unstructured joy. Um, and then uh, uh, those weeks, then, then my dad would pick us up at night and that was only more love and joy. So interspersed with a lot of very intense kind of serious stuff going on. Then I had these respites of uh, beauty and joy. And so I don't know the, the people that, so I had some very, very terrible babysitters early on and caregivers early on. And then I had this contrasting, beautiful, loving family-like setting. So, you know, I, I learned pretty early on what to do and what not to do. You know, it was not, it was not a puzzle. It was in my face. Be like Donnie. Don't be like these other people. We, you know, I had two people that were abusive. And so two separate, you know, a, a series of experiences that were abusive. And then I had this angel from, you know, heaven. So it wasn't hard. Um, and sometimes we have to be grateful for the things that are that blatant in our face. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, do you get it? Be like her. Don't <laughs> be like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'll credit, uh, you know, a, an extraordinary woman named Donnie um, Durazio, who was who was from Pittsburgh before I ever knew what Pittsburgh was. It, it's ironic that I ended up in Pittsburgh many, many, many years later. But, um, you know, she talked differently, um, but she was she was a, an, just an extraordinary woman. Did, did she have that, you know, of any any early learning background or was she just that person? She was a housewife of the 50s. And it gives me the chills because, you know, we're sometimes so dismissive of housewives of the 50s, yeah. you know, in, in terms of the stereotypic kind of apron wearing. Um, she was a full partner with her husband. She had, you know, it was very traditional in the, in the roles but she was a force in the most beautiful way. And um, yeah, I don't think she had any background or training. She just was a very beautiful woman. And an innate who, ability with kids. Who just, who truly, um, she had a wonderful sense of humor. She had this depth of, of forgiveness, like, there was nothing anybody could do in that house that was going to get them put out. Right. You know, there, again, it was that, that, that kind of unconditional love. Was she, would she get angry from time to time? Yeah. I guess I maybe can remember her being stern once or twice, but I also remember immediately after her rebuking somebody, she would just look up into the heavens smile and, and kind of do a little laugh like, Oh, you know, like, this is my lot in life. This is what I have to deal with. But it was always, she was right back. Like, like she would snap back like a rubber band in terms of who she was for us and her strength. And I, so, you know, that I made an impact. 
I love that you shared about her because um, I'm guessing this is, might be the first time she's ever been mentioned on a, on a podcast, but, <laughs> but sharing that, sharing that little bit of history, I yeah. think it, it's, it's just important to get these glimpses of people from our past. I think that's really, that's really valuable. So you, you move on and you, you find this amazing early learning program. And, and you said it was lucky. It was lucky. That it was luck. How sure lucky? How, so, how was that lucky? Well, I'll tell you how it was lucky. First of all, I um, got into each of the schools that I applied to. Um, the school that I ended up in, Fredonia State, uh, gave me the most financial aid. And my brother, who was much smarter than me and very, very different than me, um, was going to go to school the, the year after me. And I knew that, um, that money was going to be an issue, right? And I knew he would need to go to a better school than me. I just knew it. I, could be, I would be fine anywhere. He was going to need a special place. He, because he was so special, he really, and, and I will say this, my brother is an amazing human being. And he always has been um, an amazing human being and such a, 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 a presence in my life. But I was very cognizant. And so my dad, you know, he, he kind of said, well, let's see how you're going to make this decision. Um, it looks like you've gotten into all the, you know, these three or four schools that you've applied to. And uh, how should you make your decision? And I said, well, I don't know, dad, this school is giving the most money. And he said, well, <laughs> you know, that uh, that's, imp that's important. And then he did something just delightful. He took me for a few days and drove me across the state to see Fredonia State. And the, the, the real comedy of this was that it, there was a huge snowstorm, which, of course, what did I know? It was in, incredibly common, right, <laughs> um, in western New York. But and this snowstorm started in Syracuse. And so for like five hours, we were driving, you know, 30 miles an hour or so. Oh, well, actually, my dad probably drove much faster. And I'm sure I thought I was going to die. But um, <laughs> we drove in this horrible snowstorm without stopping to get to Fredonia. And when we got there, of course, the snow was up to our knees. And um, I, that should have clinched it for me right there. I should have thought, you know, if I, if I, I don't know, if I was thinking, I would have thought, yeah, this is not going to be the place for me. But instead... He did very smart things. He didn't take me to the library, he took me to the student union. And I got to experience this, you know, really kind of excitement of students being social and being together. And we walked around the campus that next day and we, I don't know, you know, on the way back, we, we almost skid the whole way home. It was just treacherous. Um, and, um, and then I just decided that I would go there, but I didn't make a, con I mean, I didn't make a conscious decision about why I would go there, except that it was the furthest away from where I lived that I could get and stay in the state of New York and get state tuition and financial aid. And, you know, I, I've said sometimes to colleagues at Fredonia, I'm sorry to say that that was the only reason that I went there. Okay. It, it was that once I got there, that it became such a powerfully special place for me. 
And so in the end of my freshman year, I discovered that there's this, so I was already going to go declare as an LED major. I thought, look, that's what I want to do. I'll teach first grade. I will only teach first grade or kindergarten, but really first grade, because that's where it all happens, right? That's where reading happens. I'm going to be a first grade teacher. And then somebody that I knew in my dorm said, well, you know, there's this program for people who want to teach children up through third grade only from birth to the grade three. And I thought to myself, well, I sure don't want to teach any big kids, kids fourth grade and up. I didn't, I just, I didn't love school that much in those grades, right? And so I went to, to look into this and then you had to be interviewed and, you know, grades were a factor and my freshman grades weren't that great. And so I was very nervous about whether they would take me. But they did. So I must have done something right in the interview. Although I remember, uh, I don't remember what I wore, but I do remember where I was for the interview. And, um, and I'm sure I was very nervous. But as it turns out, I was accepted into this program. It started in the, uh, the fall of my sophomore year. And there were so many critical pieces in this program that made a difference that not only have I thought about it every day since then, but I, when I was at the university of Pittsburgh, we tried to build a program that, that was in its likeness. I don't know that we succeeded perfectly. Um, but, but we, it was the inspiration for a, for a graduate program that we designed at the university of Pittsburgh for early childhood. Um, from the faculty, every one of them amazing. Four faculty members. Uh, one I didn't love, but the other three were amazing. Um, diverse, uh, different ages, different colors, different genders. Four faculty, all different from each other, you know. Um, and so the faculty were amazing. The approach to courses was amazing. We took no methods courses. We did not learn about how to teach math. We learned about children's interest in math and how math was relevant to children that were young and how math crossed over into social studies, into science, we learned that reading was a means to an end and not an end. And in this country right now, we're, we're disgraceful. I mean, reading is, an, is the end. If you can get to, you know, we have all these third grade reading initiatives that are so painful for children. It's no wonder they don't read or don't want to read or don't love to read. Um, we, we saw reading as a means to an end, and it was all about l literature and love of language. And it was truly a remarkable program. And we started, so that was, so that was two things, three things. We started working with children right out of the gate. I wasn't, I wasn't in my first semester, three weeks before I wasn't knocking on Bill Greenleaf's door. 
And, um, and so we were immersed in working with children. Uh, Another fourth thing was that we student taught for an entire year. There were none of this eight week, 15 week nonsense. We, uh, my first semester of my senior year, I worked in a first grade, second grade combination with an extraordinary teacher named Marlene Camper, who on the day before school met with me with a stack of books, two feet high. And she said, you'll have to take these home because this is, these are all the books we use for this, for this class. And then she said something I will never forget. She said, in this class, we have 11 reading groups. And Victor is his own reading group. (laughs) And I looked at her and she said, and I'll be taking Victor to start. (laughs) And you will take the other five reading groups and I will take the other five reading groups. And on top of that, she then laid on me that in this school district, they teach reading using the ITA method, which is this completely different alphabet that I had to go home and learn overnight. And that was her expectation. I mean, talk about serious terror, right? But I hold this woman in such high esteem because she, her expectations were through the roof for me. And I never in a whole entire semester, so 15, 16 weeks with her, never occurred to me that I was doing a good job. I was doing, I was just working and I worked every day and every night and I worked with her, um, Towards the end of the, deep into December, she said to me, there will be a teacher opening in our building next fall. You should go talk to Mr. Barisi, who was the principal. She goes, you should go talk to Mr. Barisi about it. And I said, and what would I say? I, I didn't even get it, that she thought I could be a teacher. I still, I had never once taken a moment to figure out whether I was doing a good job or a bad job. I was just constantly fighting to to meet her expectations. And she looked at me like I had two heads and she said, oh my God, you're the best student teacher I've had in, in, in ages. You would be an amazing teacher. And I almost started to cry and I got angry at her. I don't think I've ever told her this, but I got angry at her. I thought all this, you think I'm good, but you never ever told me. And I'm sure she thought that as she piled on the work and as she gave me more and more that, that I understood it was because she did think I was good. And so that moment was stunning for me. Um, and, and, but I learned so much about her tenacity that you don't give up on a child ever, no matter who they are, no matter what their story is. 
um, it's it's these moments that I think are so powerful for me as I grew up in the field. Um, I have this vivid memory of her under the table with Victor, teaching him the word under. And this <laughs> woman, you know, in her, you know, in her slacks and beautiful blouse, uh, her, she was a, a very petite blonde powerhouse and she was crawled under the table with him and the two of them sat there cross-legged as she showed him the word under and kept saying to him Victor we are under the table where are we and he would say under the table and she would say this is the word under and it was this whole beautiful scenario you know that I was able to witness from across the room and she and I were equal partners we were together uh, Monday through Thursday for an entire semester and then and on Fridays, we would have class and seminars. And then in the second semester, I was in a third grade in another community and for half the semester. And the other half of the semester, I was the first student teacher at the Chautauqua Daycare Project, which was a brand new lab school at Fredonia State. I was supposed to be the first student teacher in the fall before I ended up in this one-two combination, but they, it had, wasn't ready yet. It wasn't, there was a delay in the construction. And so I ended up, as soon as they opened in the spring, I was their first student teacher. And, um, and it was another extraordinary experience for me. Um, I met one of my oldest best friends. She's still one of my oldest best friends. She was the director there. Um, and then, as, as luck would have it, uh, and as women's friendships go, the second director there, um, who, who got there after I graduated, uh, became my second oldest best friend in the world. And so, um, you know, my work and my personal life have always crossed over, and I'm very grateful for that. But being in that program set me on a path that... Um, would not allow um, any mediocrity in my mind. When we graduated, we had a ceremony just of the students that finished this program, and we were given a picture to frame that I have to this day, 46 years later, um, in my office here, with a blade of grass pushing up through frost, and the saying on it is, do not be conformed. And if there is any one phrase that affected my life from that moment on, it was that. And, it, and, and all I remember thinking was, man, nothing like a little pressure, right? Like here you are going out. And, and, that, was, and that was intentional. These women that raised me... Um, you know, they, in, into this field, they pretty much said, if you, if you ever falter, it will be a huge disappointment to us and everybody. Like you do not be conformed. And they knew, of course, much better than I, what public education brings and what private education brings and, and how conformity is so much a part of the culture of education. How teachers who 
how teachers who how teachers who don't conform struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and they were essentially saying, you are expected to struggle for as long as you stay in this field. Don't ever think it's going to be rote. Don't expect that, that you'll be able to go through the motions. This is serious stuff. You know, Sherry, it, it's so always I love listening to you but it, it's so beautiful the way you see these people and respect them and so forth but you know it's the way you took it it's the way you interpreted it as well it's you Sherry you know what I think I think that I came to it with a starvation with a need to, to learn, to know how and what to do, to, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something that probably is really corny, but I just think that, that a child is a sacred thing. And, and, and it is my privilege and my good fortune and my luxury to be with them. I don't, see it the other way and when you understand how sacred a child is the responsibility is huge and deep and endless and and i didn't want to screw that up and of course sometimes because we're so overzealous and we don't want to screw up we screw up anyway right i, I always laugh at people who say well i'm not going to be like my mother i'm like yeah no you'll make your own mistakes right um <laughs> You know, in my, in my own parenting, you know, I was in the beginning so proud of myself for about a hot minute thinking I'm not making the mistakes my mother made. And then I thought, oh, no, Sherry, you're a poor child. You know, you're, you're making all your own mistakes here. You are just nailing it, you know. And I, and I think that, um, you know, it, it's why I'm so... I, you know, I'm, I'm not only madly in love with my son, but I'm so grateful that he still talks to me, right? Um, and that he tolerates me because, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not completely different from the way I was when he was little. But I, but I also think that whether it's one child or 15 children in a classroom or 200 children in a school or more, or, you know, now what we do in New York state, we, we impact, you know, tens of thousands of children. We, you know, in some of the programs that we run every day, it's an honor. And I don't think, you know, yes, I was receptive. I was desperate to learn. I had a, you know, my very first professor in this program was Sister Marie Pollard, a nun. And oh, I mean, I went to school with Catholic kids who feared their nun teachers, right? Uh, before they came into the secular school. And uh, I was terrified. She said she was Sister Marie Pollard. I almost fainted. I thought, oh my God, what have I done? You know, how did I get, how did I end up with this? But <laughs> Honest to God, she was an amazing mentor. 
all the way through graduate school. So I, I did my graduate work there as well. And, um, and so I was connected to this woman for nine years, eight years and um, of school. And I don't know, I don't know how I, I, I don't know who I would have been without her. And um, so I, I think, I think all luck, I think all, the, the fact that I landed in that program with those people, with this amazing design of a program, um, and, and, the, and the support that I got from them and then people who came after. So then two other people joined the faculty um, later on in my senior year and, and they were um, both amazing. I, I, don't, I don't know that you get much luckier and mm -hmm. I do think it was them, not me, right? Yes, I was receptive. I was desperately des desiring to learn more and I sure didn't wanna mess up a kid. Right, I sure didn't. I, I wanted to do for for children the right thing, and then oh, what? What do you mean when you say I didn't want to mess up again? Oh, you know, no, not mess up again. I didn't want to mess up a kid. I okay. didn't. Oh, sorry. Didn't, yeah, I didn't. I, I I just didn't want to screw it up, right? Yeah. And um, and and then you know, as luck would have it, um, a. a a person uh, that was a mentor to me said, just as I was getting ready to graduate, um, there is a job in, in Dunkirk, which is right next to Fredonia in a very high need community. They said, there's a, a preschool program and they need a teacher. And um, you, should, you should interview for that job. And of course, before I got to the interview, you know, they had talked about me that somebody had said, you know, you probably want to hire this kid. And, uh, and I interviewed and uh, they asked, they said, we have two positions. One is in a, in a preschool, a pre-K, essentially it was a pre-K, it was four-year-olds. And, um, and again, so I took the job. Uh, it was, it was, I graduated in, a, in, 1975 there were no teaching jobs to be had in public schools there was a tremendous glut of teachers um, in fact when I was in college the, the college itself used to say, was saying to people go into something else don't go into teaching there are no jobs and I kept thinking well I only need one job I don't need jobs I need one job and I will get a job damn it <laughs> and um but there weren't a lot of public school teaching jobs. And again, how lucky for me. I don't, the fact that I found a job working with four-year-olds and not in a public school where I could build a curriculum and where I could tailor that curriculum to the individual children in my class, what a gift. It was, it's bad. I don't know what else I would call it if not luck. It's not like I strategically knew enough to get this job and to choose not to be in an elementary school, right? I, I would have made more money in an elementary school. I would have had benefits in an elementary school as it was. This was a $5 an hour job without benefits. I'm ashamed to tell you how many times I went to work sick, um, you know, feeling under the weather because I wouldn't get paid if I didn't. Um, 
there were other times that I stayed home because I was just too sick to get out of it. But, you know, that first year you get sick a lot. But I can name every one of the children in that first class. They were black and brown. We have one white child. They were migrant children. So they were either, uh, they either belonged to families that worked in the fields or worked in food service, you know, at, at, uh, in the factories. Uh, so almost all of them worked seasonally. Uh, so they were very poor. Uh, there were kids who spoke uh, no English, just Spanish. Some kids that spoke a little bit of both and then kids who were English speakers. Um, it was the most challenging year of my life teaching. And I had two assistants completely different from each other, both goddesses who could have resented me because I was the kid, I was 22. They were each older. They could have resented me. Instead, probably after the second day, something clicked and they became my sisters in arms. They were, I learned everything I needed to know from them and from these kids. Um, and I will say uh, the beauty of this job, we made home visits every, mm. I made home visits every afternoon. Yeah. The assistants stayed with the children in the afternoon. I took one child each afternoon into my rusted out rickety car, uh, a Volkswagen bug without seatbelts. Of course, there were no such thing as seatbelts at that in those days. Put that kid in the back seat of my car, drove him or her home and made a home visit with that, with the family member. Uh, sometimes the grandma, sometimes an extended family member, but usually the mom. And you couldn't make it up. You could not, you couldn't make up the value, the lessons learned, right? the relationships built, the knowledge that I developed. I, you couldn't get that in college. Um, it was... Honestly, I get, who who has a store who has a gift like this? So the children were amazing. Their families were incredibly generous in showing me what they were struggling with, what they were. I mean, you know, it, it's not a. Uh, I don't tell the story too often these days, but I had a little boy who would come into school, and in his dramatic play, he would dramatic play having sex. I was 22. I was, I mean, this was kind of mind blowing for me. And so of course I had quite a bit of judgment in my mind, like what could possibly be going on in this household. And I was judging of his parents and I didn't know what to think of it. And then I made the first home visit where they graciously welcomed me into their home and they lived with four children in a one bedroom apartment. And so, of course, the children saw things. And it was such an epiphany for me, right? Like that people live in a one-bedroom apartment, six people, yeah. right? Yeah. And, that, and that people, um, and, and I didn't grow, well, you know, of course, I had some privilege, of course. 
but you know it was just i learned everything in that first year of teaching it was just extraordinary and and i'm in touch with a with a student that i had in that in that classroom he is a a a beautiful married father of several who is an extremely present father in his children's lives it is joyful that i watch him as a you know as a total adult i mean he's he's well into his uh late 40s now being a father a husband you know it's just extraordinary to see what what happens um and he had tremendous adversity in his life just tremendous adversity when we when we visited last you know we joyfully talked about this grandmother his his grandmother was his strength and his resilience person in his life and um man i remember her like it was yesterday i would make home visits his mother was very very ill and his grandmother ran that household and i remember on one of my home visits one of the kids had an ear infection and she lined up all of the children to take the medicine <laughs> and i said to her and of course i had worked in a drugstore in high school and i said you know that's not a good idea i said first of all the you know sweetie pie who was the little girl needed to have all the medicine and um and needed to finish it and she said oh i know about that and i said well then what happens when you run out of the medicine because you give it to all the children she said i go to the druggist and i tell him i dropped the bottle and i need a new bottle and he gives me a new bottle and we just finish that bottle and <laughs> she gets all that she needs and i just thought man this woman is way smarter than you don't even think you know anything about medicine, right? Like this woman has got it together. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I just learned incredible things about the love of a family and the, and the power of a family and the fact that the family is everything and the teacher is 5%. It was humbling that, that, you know, I think that in schools, teachers think they're everything and if the, and it, and that if parents would just butt out, they could do, they could get their work done. And yes. right smack in yes. that first year, I understood the absolute opposite. You are nothing. And the best you can do is build on what these kids are coming from. And those that have so much struggle, that have families that are unable to meet their need. I mean, long before we knew what ACEs was. I was experiencing children with very, very high ACEs scores. Um, yes, I had a role to help mitigate that, to help support that, but it wasn't just the child, it was also the family. And so again, I don't know what else you'd call it. I, I just call it luck. You know? But you also gave them another option. Um, how do you mean? I mean, I think teachers, um, I agree with you that the about the parents and, and teachers in that way. And um, in fact, I wrote a I wrote a chapter about that. I wrote an article about that that young children wouldn't publish because they they thought it was too um, parent centric <laughs> and not teacher centric enough. Um, but I agree with you about that. But I think our role is to give the families and children just another option just another way of looking at things or another choice. Or I, th I think we have some 
some important say there. Yeah. Well, then, so, so I was there for two years. Um, and I left because there was some really crazy stuff going on in the, in the administration of this school. And I felt that I needed to separate. I, uh, I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, it was very hard to leave these children. And yet my next job was on, this, on the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation, working with Seneca children and families. And I worked there for six years. And again, talk about luck. Talk about finding a, a place with just extraordinary people who, A, somehow let a white girl come be with them and both run an early childhood program and teach in that program, but run the program a gift that has never, ever been diluted in my soul. Um, so the, there's, again, so many different components of power and beauty in that work. First being that among Seneca people, the two most treasured populations among them are their children and their elders. And their traditional ways are so beautiful and so obviously, or maybe not to some, but, but deeply rooted in nature, but also in the power of women and, and just this very notion that the life cycle is continuous. And so the way that Senecas look at newborns is that they're born with wisdom and they're whole at birth because they were somebody before. And so there's this beautiful saying when a baby or a small child does something very special, the elders all look around and say, well, she's been here before. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not she's not new right she's just in a new body and so a matrilineal society very powerful children and elders come first crazy right like a novel thought for an american you know uh off the reservation and um and so you know almost immediately I needed something for the, for the children. And uh, the woman that hired me said, well, go talk to Cal. He's down the hallway. And I said, well, okay, who's he? She said, well, he's the president of the nation. <laughs> I, I thought, well, maybe I don't go talk to him. She goes, oh, no, go in, go tell him you want to ask him something. <laughs> and I said, just walk in. She said, yeah, his office is just down the hall from ours. And we were in the community building. Um, and I walked over and asked if he would see me and he invited me to sit down and I said that I needed $200 for something. And his question to me was, well, is it for the children? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, I run the early childhood program. Yes, it's for the children. And he said, 
okay. <laughs> and I said, okay, what? What do I have to do? And he said, well, I don't think you have to do anything. I'll tell, you know, the, the treasurer to give you the $200. <laughs> that was my first lesson in children are a priority for us. And we hired you to be the, you know, the expert. And if you tell us that it's good for the children, well, that, that's, you're doing your job. Now we'll do our job. <laughs> I, I think that is a great line to use just across the board when you're looking, because I, I spent a lot of years working for a nonprofit. And if you go into a business and say, it's for the children, um, there are all kinds of people that are willing to jump in and be helpful about all kinds of things. So I think that's a, that's a great takeaway for listeners if they're looking for getting resources for their programs. Absolutely. It was stunning. And, and it was the, it was, it was one of many, many times. And I will say to you that, well, I have nothing to do with it. Uh, right this very moment, the, both the Cataraugus uh, reservation and the Allegheny reservation, both Seneca reservations, have the most beautiful early childhood buildings that they have since built um, that, yeah. that I think I've probably ever seen. They are simply beautiful, designed with children in mind in a huge, huge circular building with a courtyard in the middle. It is where, where children are just coveted and, and truly treasured and valued. And, um, and look, every single reservation that I know has tremendous poverty and social inequity, um, you know, just, just terrible, terrible um, social problems. Um, but those are our fault, not theirs. And, and so I learned a tremendous amount of, about equity and race and um, and human sacrifice and, you know, in terms of what people go through for their children and their elders, it was just an extraordinary place. And, and it's those early experiences that I credit with, if I've done anything of value, it's in, it's, it's right up till the point that I uh, left the reservation. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I lived there five more years uh, after I worked there. So I worked there for six years, then I lived there for five more years. My son is half uh, Seneca and, um, and, and just, it is one of the most beautiful places on earth in my mind to live and to, and to be um, in, its, in its simplicity, in its beautiful simplicity and its homage to nature. It is one of the you know, so I learned, a, you know, that's where I grew up. You know, I grew up and then I really grew up. Um, and, and I think in, in, in all honesty, that is how I understand my work today. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but. Um, this is, this is, Jeff, this has been amazing, hasn't it? Yeah, but I got to ask a question. <laughs> Okay. Sherry, if, if I'm wondering this, there's are listeners that are wanting this. So this, uh, this, this child that brings the sex play and the dramatic play, and then you get the, you get the information about, about where this is coming from. How did you deal with it in the classroom? Because that's something practical listeners for this show are, are going to be interested sure. in. They're going to sure. be writing to you, Jeff. <laughs> well, you know, once I realized that it was learned, 
um, I was able to, and, and thank God I didn't jump on this kid and admonish him at first. I realized that I really had to figure out what was going on here. I mean, because uh, of course I thought, uh, do I have to call child protection? I mean, like I, I was like stunned. So I quick made a home visit. Uh, and I didn't bring it up, but I, the minute I walked in, so I'll give you even more details. So this is, this will, I, I think, make everybody laugh, but he was, he was sitting on a rocking chair we had in the classroom without any arms on it. And he had this little girl sit on his lap, straddling, facing him and straddling him. I, I and quite honestly, at 22, I didn't know that you could have sex like that. Right. I, I, was, so, <laughs> I was so naive but I knew what he was doing. And so when I got to his house, they had a rocking chair like that. And I thought, oh my goodness, this poor little guy has seen this. So then the next day, uh, and it wasn't the next day that he did it, but like a couple of days later, he went to do it again. And I walked over to him and he, you know, he called over this little girl and they were playing in the housekeeping corner. And I said, um, in, in this school, we should, um, we should just hug. That we, we, we're not going to do this anymore. That you can sit in the chair, but, but you can't have somebody on your lap. It's, she's too heavy. And that in this classroom, when you want to be near somebody, you can hug them was long before the time where you, you know, weren't supposed to encourage that kind of stuff. And I would, I would still encourage hugging today, but, and that's, and he got it. I don't, I don't know why or how he got it. Maybe he was a little embarrassed. I don't, I tried not to make him embarrassed. Um, but, but that's pretty much, you know, I, I just very calmly and quietly said, she's too heavy and and we don't we're we're not going to do this in school but if you want to be near her you can give her a hug if you love her you can give her a hug and 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 it just worked you know sometimes you get lucky sometimes you don't right sometimes you have intractable problems but this was not one of them well you um, gave him another option <laughs> always another option right always another option yeah and I will say this, just for your listeners' pleasure, I, I was married, and newly married, and we had a furnished apartment, and don't you know, we had one of those rocking chairs in our house, <laughs> and I went home, and I said to my husband, wait till I show you what I learned in school today. <laughs> <laughs> Fully clothed, I, you know, and he was so unnerved, he said, you learned that in school? I said, I did. I'm learning all kinds of things in my classroom. So it was a real joke for us for a long time, you know. Um, what a wonderful story, Sherry. She was so naive in those early years of marriage, you know, but it was really, I, I learned more about life from those kids than I did any adult. <laughs> I'm going to go buy a rocking chair. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sherry, before we before we start wrapping things up, I was wondering you've you've mentioned luck a lot. Are there yeah. any other mentors you've had in your your journey that that we should touch on for a moment? Because those seems to be th- these mentors that that just happenstance brings them into your life. Um, are there are there any more that we should talk about? Yeah, 
<laughs> I have been, yeah, because I've just been that lucky. Um, yes, I think in every way, um, when I was on the reservation, I worked for a man named Hank Huff, who, who was just a diehard advocate for children. And it was extraordinary to get to work with him. I worked with another guy. Um, there was another white person that I worked with on the reservation. We both agree as recently as two years ago that we would have been completely different educators had we not worked on the reservation. But he was a great partner in, in the work. Uh, Chuck Rinaldi, who went on to be a superintendent of the Gowanda Public Schools, and I'll say this publicly, they used to be the most racist place you could send your kids. And Chuck, and I will credit him singularly for walking into that district one day and just changing its culture um, in so many ways. And so um, it was a privilege to work with him. And everywhere I've ever worked, I have always found somebody whose work ethic was extraordinary, who understood um, the, the meaning of supporting children, being with children, um, understood the power of, of being powerful for children, every step of the way. Um, it, whether it was being a child person or being just an extraordinary work person, somebody who, who understood the, the power of work. Um, you know, at Erie Community College, I worked for somebody um, who just inspired me every day and who supported me every day. And um, yeah, you know, up until right now, um, I've had three, um, I've worked for three men at the, at the City University of New York over 15 years. One for uh, 13 years, one for one year, one for another year now. All three of them are inspirational. I mean, who, you tell me if that's not luck, I don't know what it is. Right? <laughs> I don't, you know, uh, there are days where I'm thinking, I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> you know, um, you know and, and I think that being a good student of humans and human nature, of paying attention, you know, I think I am good at paying attention and I am always interested in learning um, from others and figuring out how things work and how to make things work. I mean, I, I mess up all the time and I often feel like there's so much opportunity to learn, but I am a good student. And, and, and that is... I like to learn from other models from outside of early childhood. Um, you know, I learned so much from the military and I've learned so much from the matrilineal culture of a, of a, of an Indian society where a clan mother has more power than the chief. And the chief is almost always a guy, right? But the clan mother has more power. Those and, and power in the way of, influence like what is it that, like how do you make things change and you don't make things change because you're the boss you make you inspire change you influence people to make their own change and and I've learned all of that from 
others. And I might add, Jeff. Yes. That Sherry inspires people to make change. I know that personally. Well, I mean, I haven't noticed anything like that in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can see. I can see that might be a thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, Sherry. I mean. I, I worked for her actually <laughs> a couple of years ago and I had a most wonderful experience when we were um, developing teachers for uh, New York City. What, Sherry, a, what a fantastic oh, go ahead, sorry. time it was. Sherry, maybe your superpower is being able to see the mentors around you because mm-hmm. I, I have this feeling that there's a lot of people in this field who are exposed to potential mentors all the time but uh, have blinders on and and don't pay attention to those people and what they could be learning from them and and so maybe you as a student are are good at at seeing those people and and learning from them where where other times other times other people might not might not take that benefit that they they have laid out in front of them well that may be true i think that comes from in some ways, abject fear of screwing up. (laughs) You know, I I, want to acknowledge that I think sometimes I come across as very confident and perhaps very capable, um, which is great. If if I come across that way, good. Um, But the reality is that there is a tremendous amount of anxiety in, in every day of how do we get this done? What do children need? What do families need? What do teachers need? What do, lead, what do leaders need? How do we meet the needs? I feel like I'm so humbled every day. And, and that has a funny connotation of I'm humbled, but I mean like brought to my knees humbled on a daily basis about what we're not doing, what we're not getting to. And I think I alluded to this earlier that in this work that I do, I think about this incredible tension between the urgency of making something change, making something happen, fixing something, building something, and the the need for patience, the need and requirement for what it takes to make something good happen for children and families and the workforce. And, and that notion that, like, like how you have to breathe through the bureaucracy, the frustration, the, the barriers, the, you know, that's, that's powerful. And I, and, and always stay, you know, with your eye on the prize, if, you know, as, as some people say it, but uh, to me, there isn't a prize. There is, you know, there is all this stuff that that should be, that must be, and and so, you know, I am starving still for people who can, who have agency, who can make a change, who can share power with children, and so to your point, Jeff, yes, maybe I'm constantly looking for people who can work with me who can lead me who can help teach me how to make a difference and you know until I take my last breath I think that will always be the case I'll do it in different ways you know I 
I um, want to be mindful about not staying around too long in certain ways, but but always to stay focused on, um, you know, if you're not making change, you're not, you can't stay. You can't, you know, you don't get to be at the table if you're not going to work every day. So how do we bring more of those people into this profession? Well, I'm going to say something controversial. In this profession, we take who comes. We are not selective and we have to be selective. And I don't mean exclusive and everybody gets bent out of shape. Oh, you know, you mean you would turn people away. No, we have to raise the bar. And there are all these people of every kind who want to make a difference for children and we have to give them pathways. And so a lot of my work these days is in how to, how to, how to engage and invite people to come in, how to be inclusive, and then how to give people what they need so that they can thrive and, and survive and thrive. I once worked for this amazing guy at the University of Pittsburgh. His name was Ben Tucci. And the only reason that I went to work at the University of Pittsburgh was, was in my last interview of a two-day marathon. I met with Ben, who would be my ultimate boss at the university. And the whole time that I'm there, I'm thinking, I'm not coming. I'm not taking this job. If they offer me this job, I'm not going to take this job. I was annoyed at some of the things they had done prior. I wasn't impressed with their program. And I, I just wasn't going to do it. And then I was interviewed by the senior vice chancellor of the University of Pittsburgh. And I said to him, um, so how do you, how do you lead? And he says, how do I lead? I'll tell you how I, he was really gruff. I'll tell you how I lead. He said, I pick the single best people I can find. I give them whatever they need and I get out of their way. And at that moment, I thought, I'll work for this guy. I'll work for him. And, and so when they offered the position, I took it. And it was that quick, that, that trans, it was, it was trans, transformational. So I feel like, how do we find the best people and then give them what they need and get out of their way, but never leave them behind? So that everyone deserves somebody at their back. I've always had that. I found it. I made that happen or I, however it happened, people need people at their back. And, and I feel, you know, we talk a lot about compensation. I certainly talk a lot about compensation. There's nothing wrong with deserving and wanting money, but, but there are so many people in this field that came into this field, not expecting to make money. So that is, so they are not mutually exclusive. We must absolutely, it is a moral imperative to change compensation. And I have done it in every job I've ever had, dramatically. But the people that stayed in those jobs would have stayed in those jobs had I not changed their compensation because they came into the work to do the work. So to me, those are two separate things. They are related. I could do a better job recruiting more, more talented people, 
if we paid better, no yeah. doubt. But there are a lot of really crappy doctors and lawyers out there. So <laughs> I don't want anybody to think that money, and certainly there's some crappy people in high finance, right? So I don't want anybody to think that, that that's the only answer. It is one part of the three-legged stool, if you will. But getting people excited about the power of this work is a place that we have failed. And we have failed in holding ourselves up to a high, high standard. Yeah, we I lower agree. the bar every day. And who pays for that? Teeny tiny children. They're not even old enough to be resilient yet in that way that we all are. And we put them in, in peril. And it isn't to say that the workforce is a mess. It is to say that we could do so much better if we empowered our teachers and our leaders to do the work they want to do. And very quickly, I'll tell you that, you know, my office runs Quality Stars New York, which is the state's quality rating and improvement system. Our approach every time that we go to a program is we already know that you are doing everything you possibly can in the right ways. But we also acknowledge that the structure and systems prevent you from doing everything you want to do. And that's where we come in. We're going to help you do what you want to do. You're not going to do what we want you to do. We, we want to help you do what you know is right and what you want to do. And we have a system right this minute that generally speaking prevents people from doing the right thing. So I think it's forging those relationships. You know, the things we've seen um, in working with educators, we have a leadership initiative. We have a lot of ways that we are helping people be their best selves. And they only need a tiny little boost. You know, we, have, we created a scholarship program because we know that there are people working right this minute, working with children who wish they could have earned a degree. So we're helping them get the degree and we're not making them get the degree. We're providing a pathway for them to get the degree. And we provide for them, not just money, but a, a relationship with a career advisor that helps them mitigate all the barriers that they're likely to face when they try to work, raise a family and go back to school. So it's making a commitment to the workforce so that, they're, so that, that we have their back and we hold them to very, very high expectations. And for does, me, that's the combination. Does that include a commitment to helping people who find themselves in the field who really don't want to be in the field or yes. don't fit in the field get out? Yes. I love that you asked that question. So we have, uh, we, are, <laughs> we are now scaling up. So we, um, we have 10 career centers across the state of New York, one in every uh, economic region. And those career advisors are trained to help people find the jobs they want and, and are tooled to and to help people make change. We've done, we've done um, seminars on how to be courageous and make career change, how to leave the classroom when you decide you've had enough or it never was for you. I, I often say there's very few people who are really cut out to be in a classroom with children all day long. Absolutely. A very, very special person. But there are, and we have a chart, there are over a hundred jobs that you can do 
meaningful jobs that you can do if you care about and want to serve children and families. Teaching in a classroom is only one. And so how do we help people figure out where do they really belong? And where, where are their gifts best used? Sure. And, and no shame in leaving the classroom. No. None whatsoever. In fact, we laud people who make a decision to leave the classroom and, and do any, whatever they're, they're, what they're wired to do. Right? Like that's what we do with children. Why don't we do that with grown-ups? Yeah. Yep. We don't any longer say you're a girl, you have to be a nurse or a teacher. We say you can be whatever you want. Let's figure it out. So that's what we say to the workforce. So I'm so glad that you asked that, Jeff. Because well, I, another podcast I do with my buddy Lisa Murphy, we talk often about uh, the number of warm bodies that get hired into classrooms in, in this field. And, it, and those people that have that commitment, it, it makes the job two or three times as hard for them when, they're, when their peers, when their cohort in that program doesn't, doesn't really care. That's right. It's a hard That's place right. to be. Any, anything we didn't ask you that we should have, Sherry? I don't know. This has been so joyful. It's um, so nice to sit with the two of you. I, I don't, uh, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> it's if, so good to see you, Sherry. <laughs> and Sherry, as, as we wrap up, if anybody needs to know more about you, is there any place they should find you on the oh, interwebs or stalk you or any place? People should just email me if they'd like. Uh, you know, my address is very easy. It's my name with a dot in the middle. So sherry.cleary at cuny c-u-n-y dot e-d-u can't get much um, simpler than that right and i answer uh every email and i try to do it the day i get it so uh, i don't always succeed at that but it's a goal and so yeah if anybody wants to reach out or, or talk i'm happy to engage Sherry, thank you so much for joining us. As soon as we disconnect from Zoom, I'm going to go uh, on uh, online and start ordering uh, rocking chairs. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. For every room in the house. Yeah. Rocking, rocking chair for every room in the house. Uh, thanks to Sherry. That's, that's what I'm bringing away from this episode. I can't believe that's what you're bringing away from this whole podcast. Well, yeah, there might I, be other things. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Those things are very important. Of course they are. <laughs> um, th- thanks so much. It's My a real pleasure. weird, real weird way to end the show. Tamar, really? say something brilliant. Me? Yeah. I sure. don't have anything left to say because I've just been so inspired by Sherry once again. <laughs> Sherry said it all. Yeah. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back shortly with another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.